Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. In a book, it said a remarkable brick from the wall of Babylon bears the inscription of one of its mighty kings. In the center of the inscription is a footprint of one of the dogs which wandered about the crowded city. You see, it was the custom to imprint the royal mark upon the bricks used for public works. However, while this particular brick was lying in its plastic state to dry, a vagrant dog had accidentally trodden upon it. The king's inscription is entirely illegible, while the footprint of the dog is perfectly distinct. The name of the mighty ruler of Babylon is unknown. The footprint of the dog has a decided advantage over the inscription of that king. The author then surmises, may we not see here a picture of man's present condition. Created originally in the image and after the likeness of God, man as he is now by nature no longer reflects the moral beauty and perfection of the divine character. While in one part of his nature, the soul which is God's image is defaced and the footprint of the evil one is distinctly visible. We've been talking the past couple of weeks about the world's hatred of all things holy. And this week we're going to see that the origin of that is the hatred of the truth. Look at verse 23 with me. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now, this statement is parallel to what Jesus told the Pharisees after he had healed the blind man. They had to admit that he had healed the man born blind, but they would not follow the evidence to its logical conclusion and put their trust in him. And so Jesus told them that it was they who were really the blind ones. But since they admitted that they had seen a miracle, this made their sin even worse. Why? You see, they were not sinning in ignorance. They were sinning against a flood of light. Now, what is sadly ironic about all of this is the Jews saw themselves of the, uh, as the upholders of the law. But in their zeal for the law, they incurred the condemnation of the law by rejecting the Christ to whom the whole law had testified. Like Paul before his conversion, the Jews considered Christians to be heretics. Thus, they believed that by persecuting the church, they were actually honoring God. As Jesus will tell his disciples in chapter 16, they're going to make you outcasts in the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that they are offering a service to God. So we see that the fruit of hatred is persecution. Jesus promised his closest followers that persecution would be their reward in this world. In persecution, hatred becomes deliberate and not merely coincidental. The world will pursue Christians simply for the sake of venting its hatred. Now, Jesus, specifically through his words and his work, demonstrated by contrast how sinful the Jews were, and they hated him for that. His inner righteousness drew their abiding hostility because it revealed the shabbiness of their external goodness. 
because that light revealed their own sin, and they did not want to face that honestly. Their attitude was that that is described in 2 Peter 3, 5, where we read, For this they are willingly ignorant. And that is nothing new. It is no accident that at the present time, the dominant trend in psychoanalysis includes the rediscovery of narcissism. Our society is marked by self-interest and egocentrism that increasingly reduces all relations to the question, what am I getting out of this? Now that attitude has even penetrated the church. Many think that Christianity exists only to make us healthy and wealthy and to give our lives smooth sailing. But the danger of the health, wealth, smooth sailing, God is my butler gospel is obvious. When life does not fit our theological box, some will either toss out their faith or begin to deny reality. The truth is, those who reject Christ do not know God. Now that applies to the one who is outwardly, 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 I'll get it, outwardly religious, no less than it does to the hardened atheist. The world hated Jesus because he exposed their sin and confronted them with the reality of who he was. But, in light of Jesus' words and works, there was no valid cause to hate him. That the world continually does so graphically not only reveals the vileness of sin, but also mankind's inability to see that sin in themselves. Once an African chief, in this case a woman, happened to visit a mission station. Hanging outside the missionary's cabin on a tree was a little mirror. The chief happened to look into the mirror and saw her reflection with its hideous paint and evil features. She gazed at her terrifying countenance and jumped back in horror, exclaiming, Who is that horrible person living inside that tree? Oh, the missionary said, It is not in the tree. That glass is reflecting your own face. The African would not believe it until she held the glass in her hand. She said, I must have this glass. How much will you sell it for? Well, the missionary said, I really don't want to sell it. But she begged and begged until he capitulated. She took the mirror, exclaiming, I will never have it making faces at me again. And she promptly threw it on the ground and broke it into pieces. That is precisely what the Jews did with Jesus. And tragically, it often happens today, as we hate to see sometimes who we really are. Many years ago, when the London Times asked a number of writers for an essay on the topic, What's Wrong with the World? G.K. Chesterton sent in the shortest and most concise reason. He simply wrote, Dear sirs, your question, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. But it often offends people if you, don't, if you even mention the possibility that they are at fault being blinded by their own sin. No wonder the most oft-quoted verse from the Bible is not for God so love the world, but rather do not judge or you too will be judged. Even in evangelical circles we sometimes hear, who are you to judge? Now, the clear implication of the question is that we have no right to say that lifestyle is wrong or that is heresy or, again, this preacher is a false preacher. Well, I think the one word that probably best describes our culture today is whatever. 
And really, liberalism is the culture's modern philosophy. It is also, in a way, the most ancient. It has the, the echo of a very early temptation to it from the Garden of Eden. Listen to how one theologian puts it. He writes, Liberal, liberalism is an assertion of the promise of man. Man must be free to fashion his life and his institutions in the light of his ever-expanding intellect. Hence, all the old repressive arrangements must be destroyed, such as kings and priests, inherited traditions, and unexamined creeds. In theory, nothing is sacred. Nothing beyond the reach of questioning and remaking liberalism makes man his own master. Yeah, that has worked out great so far in human history, hasn't it? Now we don't even know which bathroom we're supposed to use. Not only is man his own master, every man is his own master. Now this agrees quite nicely with the structure of popular culture in which what is popular determines what is good. The people's choice in Hollywood, for example, reward not intrinsic merit, but just sheer popularity. The world today says, if I feel this is right to me, and you come along and say, no, God's word says that is wrong, well, even if they are wearing a rainbow t-shirt that says, be tolerant, they will instantly scream out in rage at you that you are a narrow-minded bigot. Why? Because Christianity has always said, there is a truth that we have, and it is Christ's teaching, which is revelation from outside of the world and above the world, and it alone can judge the world. Because of that, we're always going to find ourselves in the place of being persecuted. Remember, Jesus' teaching was full of authority. Now, in the synagogues, a man would get up to speak, and when he would sit down at the end of his speech, at that point, the elders would decide whether or not what he said was true. And if it was true, they would say, Amen, Amen, which means it is true. But when Jesus would begin his speeches, very often in the Gospels, he would start by saying, Amen, Amen, or truly, truly, or still my favorite is the old King Jimmy, which says, Verily, verily. Now, this was an absolutely astonishing claim. Jesus was saying, I take away your right to be the final judge on whether what I say is right. I am God himself. I am the son of God. And therefore, what I have to say is truth from outside of this world. It's far above the world. It's from outside time and space. And therefore, it judges the world regardless of how you may feel about it. So how can we define sin then? Listen, there are many ways of taking pleasure. Not all of them are, are immoral, and not all of them are morally good. For instance, one person may take pleasure in visiting the elderly in nursing homes on Saturday afternoon, while another may take pleasure in mugging old ladies on the street on Saturday nights. One person has a taste for acts of benevolence. The other person has a taste for acts of violence. But the difference in preference is not simply a matter of taste, as that world is normally used. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, said Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. What that means is that eating meat offered to idols is no problem for the Christian as long as the Christian doesn't believe that the idols have any kind of real spiritual reality. As long as the Corinthian believers were not caught up in the culture of Corinth, 
as long as the sensibility of the culture did not dominate their own sensibilities, they could all participate in the intrinsically innocent activities that that culture afforded. But if someone was gripped by the culture's own beliefs, then even the meat that they ate were tainted. Now, the same holds true in our day. There is nothing wrong with frivolous activity for one whose life is not committed to frivolity. But back to our sin question and how we see ourselves. Having fallen sick, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, said to his servant Haziel to inquire of Elisha the prophet if he would recover. You'll recover from your disease, answered Elisha, before proceeding to weep uncontrollably. What's wrong, asked the servant. Elisha answered, I see the evil that you're going to do. You're going to set the cities of the Israelites on fire. You'll kill her young men, kill her children, and rip open her pregnant women. That's preposterous, said Haziel. Why do you think I am, a dog? I would never do those things. But the very next day, we saw Haziel smothering Ben-Hadad and reigning in his stead. In his stead. Thus setting into motion the events that would culminate in a fulfillment of Elisha's prophecy. Now, why would I mention that? The Word of God says that humanity is depraved and sinful. I would never do that, we say. Why do you think I am, a dog? But yet, so sinful is our flesh that even the good things that we do are sometimes tainted with wrong motives and wrong attitudes. Because we all want to be liked and appreciated, we carefully cultivate an image to impress people. Just think Facebook here. Now, it might be through intellectual ability or appearance, athletic prowess, or even through a service to humanity. So we protest. Why do you think I am? A dog? It doesn't work, however, because there is none righteous. And sooner or later... We're all chasing cats and eating Alpo. I hope Alpo's still a dog poop. I don't know. Simply put, it never works. What I'm saying is sin is the wrong recipe for good health. Sin is the wrong gasoline to put in the tank. Sin is the wrong road in order to make it home. And finally, sin is futile in the end. Now, thankfully, because of the cross, we can exchange our sin for his righteousness. Now, we find this exchange of terms several times in the Old Testament. A person first described as the angel of the Lord is later addressed as the Lord himself. Now, the best explanation is that on those occasions, the Lord Jesus took temporary visible form prior to his incarnation. There we see Joshua in his filthy garments is standing before God himself. The obvious question, what will a holy, righteous God do with a person whose sins and shortcomings are so blatantly obvious? We return to Joshua in this appalling condition. And if anything, that translation, filthy garments, greatly understates the reality. The Hebrew word describes filth such as dung, urine, and vomit. His garments were utterly unsuitable for the presence of other people, never mind the holy God of the universe. He looked awful and smelled even worse. 
What this filth represents is made clear when the angel says, take off his filthy clothes and then declares to Joshua, see, I've taken away your what? Your sins. The filth represents the disgusting reality of his sins as well as the sins of his people. I think sometimes we have a hard time recognizing how sinful our sinfulness must appear before the Lord. You see, we take sin for granted. Because not only do we find it all around us, we constantly deal with it in ourselves. Now, definitions of sin can sound pretty clinical, as in, sin is any act, any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. But we like to rename sin by things like failings, weaknesses, or my little boo-boo. But the Bible is full of metaphors of what sin is really like. Hear what the God of truth calls sin, and some of those names include the vomit of dogs, the venom of serpents, stench of rotten tombs and sewers, sores, gangrene, and plague. Because even the whores of hell struggle to find a name repulsive enough for it, the worst expression of its putrid nature is to call it by its own name, that being sinful sin. Neil Plantinga wrote, or writes, Sin is the missing of the mark, a wandering from the path, a strain from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance, even when it is familiar. Sin is never normal. Sin is disruption of the created harmony and resistance to the divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital relation to God. And it does all this disrupting and resisting a number of intertwined different ways. Here's what I want us to see today. At times we can get a glimpse of how truly defiled we really are. It was the experience of Isaiah who in the presence of God could only declare, woe is me. Or more precisely, I am ruined. It is a declaration of a holy God that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are just like filthy rags. And that is the universal condition. However we may appear to one another, we stand guilty apart from Christ before a holy God. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn memorably discovered in a prison camp in the Russian Gulag when he wrote these words, If only there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. And then he says, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? But for Solzhenitsyn, that discovery was not a source of despair. Rather, it was the beginning of his hope and salvation as he began to look outside of himself and into the grace of God as his only refuge. Verse 26, please. 
But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In verse 26 and 27, it says, You have to go out and testify that I am the way and the truth and the life. You see, the real reason why the world will continually get upset with Christians, not understand Christians, and very often hate Christians, is because Christians say, I know what ultimately is the medicine that will cure your deepest ills. You need Jesus. Now, the only way to tell somebody they need Jesus is you also have to say you're weak, and so you need to humble yourself and see that you need him. Now, who wants to initially hear that? The Bible says that Christians are salt. Now, salt is a preservative and a healing agent. Christians are salt in the world. But when you put salt on a wound, it stings as it heals. Likewise, the gospel stings as it heals. It always does. And people object to that. So what do we do since we may know that we may bear the brunt of their rejection if we try to help them? There was a pastor on his church going to church one day and he saw a poor little animal running around in a panic because this little animal had stuck its head into a cocoa can to try to get a few grains of sugar from the bottom. Well, now it couldn't get its head out and it was running around in circles. The pastor thought, what an interesting sermon illustration. That's how pastors think, by the way. If I ever find you bleeding in a ditch, I'm going to help you, but I will work that into a sermon illustration one day. If I like you, I won't use your name, though. But isn't that just like the world, trying to get a few goodies, and then you get your head stuck in a can? Now you're in a panic. You can't see where you're going. He was trying to turn this into an illustration and decided, well, I've got to do something. But then he rushed over and saw that the little animal was actually a skunk. He suddenly realized he had a very difficult decision he had to make. Now, it's probable that the skunk wouldn't think it was liberated, being liberated as it was being liberated. So what do we do? Well, more importantly, let's step back. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying, I will send you out to testify to people who will hate you, even if their head is in a can. In other words, what do we do in that situation? We have two choices. Don't be a fool and get downwind, or don't be a coward, reach down and pull. Then the pastor said, now some of you are probably wondering what happened to the skunk. The answer is simple. I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps the police came and shot it. Perhaps someone braver than me came along and attempted a rescue. Or perhaps the skunk is still up in the woods. <clears throat> and he posed his final question. Why do you and I find it relatively easy to sympathize with a poor animal in a defensive situation, yet too often ignore human beings in a similar predicament? What are we to do about a world that includes a lot of wounded and hurting people whose predicaments are similar to a frightened animal crazed and blinded by a self-contained prison? But isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us when we had our heads in a can of sin? What Jesus is saying is, when I was in my greatest hour of need, 
you deserted me. When I stooped down in love, I got nailed, and there was nobody with me. And if you decide to love people by telling them about me, there's a good chance you're going to get nailed too. The difference is, when I got nailed, you weren't there. But when you get nailed, I'll be there. My spirit of glory will rest upon you. I will stand by you, and my spirit will go with you as you testify of me. But despite the clear biblical emphasis on being witnesses for Christ, much of today's methodology focuses on meeting people's felt needs. That downplays the significance of the biblical emphasis on the glory and the person and work of the Savior and the crucial importance of confronting unbelievers with their sin and its consequences unless they are rescued by faith in the atoning accomplishment of the cross. Let me say here that we are in no ways responsible for how they respond to that. Now that includes whether they fall to their knees weeping in repentance or if they spit right in our face. I think a memorable illustration of the Lord's methodology in action is his encounter with a synagogue ruler in Luke 18. Now this man seemed to be the ideal prospect for evangelism. Although he was an outwardly devout religious man, he knew something was lacking in his life. And that prompted his question. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that was no abstract theological question. He not only recognized his need, but he also felt that need very deeply. This young man was also diligent in his pursuit of an answer. Mark records that oblivious to what the crowd might think, he ran up to Jesus and knelt before him. So we see he also came to the right source, since Jesus is the only source of eternal life. And finally, he even asked the right question, how he might take possession of eternal life. But to his sorrow and the crowd's astonishment, this seemingly surefire prospect went away unsaved. Proud and self-righteous, he treasured his earthly possessions more than the promise of heavenly riches. His shallow, superficial faith was not sufficient for him to confess his sin and forsake everything to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? He wanted eternal life on his own terms, but they were not on God's terms. And men and women hated the Lord Jesus Christ for much the same reason. That is why they hate him today and hate the Bible and by extension hate us. Christ and God's word reveals our true self. And many times mankind does not like that revelation. And the only way for us to respond to such hatred is love, even if it is tough love. The Bible proclaims that not I, but Christ lives in me. Maybe by changing one letter, we could also say, not I, but Christ loves in me. If Peter, after his denial, had been met with hardness, in all probability, there would not have been a Peter in Scripture today. But the love of Christ, even after Peter's worst failure, went on loving him. And lifting him right out of the pit of sin and the mighty clay of despair, 
and set his feet on the rock once again. And here Jesus was a pattern for his followers forever. You see, love is not only better than criticism, it is infinitely more effective by its redeeming power. So as we finish up today, the Duke of Windsor gave up the crown of England and the throne so he could marry an American commoner. People came and said to him, you're crazy. What are you doing? What did he say? You don't know her like I know her. You see, I have her. So what do I need this for? What do I need that for? I can't expect you to understand because you're not on the inside. But if you knew her as I knew her, if you loved her as I loved her, you'd have an ability to understand why I can give up all these other things. That's why the world can't understand Christians. Christ comes to Christians and says, you have me. Therefore, money, comfort, acclaim, and status, none of that stuff is really important anymore. You have me. And when you truly have him, you know that he's right. But as soon as somebody who has not experienced that kind of love find out that you're giving 10% to the church, they'll say, you're crazy. As soon as somebody who's not experienced Christ sees you forgiving people and you're doing good to people who have mistreated you, they'll say, you're crazy. You're going to be walked all over. In this world, you have to be tough. If in this world you're too friendly and nice, they'll think you don't have any power and they're going to take advantage of you. Let me leave us with this. And so, if Jesus Christ, with all his greatness and perfection, if he does not escape persecution, then what hope is there for us with our imperfections? You see, one of the problems of popular culture is to say that in itself it does not teach us how to enjoy life wisely. What I mean is, unless you had a taste for something better, you would never get tired of eating fast food and frozen dinners all the time. If you were dissatisfied with such a diet, you wouldn't be able to define your dissatisfaction unless you had something greater to compare it with. What Jesus Christ comes and says to us is, you don't know how radically I have changed you. You don't realize your citizenship has moved from away from your homeland. I am now the vine. I have cut your roots to your race, so that is no longer the main thing that defines you. I do. I've cut your roots to your political party. It's no longer the thing that defines you. I do. I've cut the roots to your social class. Those things used to define you and give you your identity. They no longer do. I do. These things used to be the things you had to listen to, but no longer. I am the vine. I am your life. Your citizenship has been moved into another kingdom. And to that I say, praise the Lord. And you can look at them just like the, the Duke of Windsor and say to them, hey, you don't know him like I know him. From the inside, from the perspective of love, it makes perfect sense. But from the outside, it may seem absolutely inexplicable. This is one of the reasons there is a huge difference between the people who know Christ and those who don't. And if you don't know him, I hope that today will be that day. Let us pray. Lord, you are the vine. You are the source of life. I love that verse that says, you are the life that is truly life. Anything else that we would ever try to put in your place is such a, a dim compromise 
to what you would have for us. Open up our eyes and our hearts by your Holy Spirit and reveal to us what you would have us to do. We ask in your name, amen.